Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We'll be reading this morning, beginning in verse 41, but the opening question is, what do you do with an imperfect church? Most of you have probably heard it said, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll mess it up. What's really meant by that statement is that there are no perfect local churches because Christ's church is made up of saved sinners. And it's just the second part of that that gives us trouble. Saved sinners. The spirit indwelling us is still at war with our flesh, and that's the reality we face until our salvation is made complete at final glorification. But we know God can be trusted that this too is part of his perfect plan and that our Lord desires to draw near, for us to draw near to him and to depend on him so that he can keep shaping us into the pure bride that he is preparing for himself. So we don't lose heart that we have difficult experiences within local churches and even between individuals in local churches. We have quite a number of kids in our church family. So if you're not old enough to have experienced the reality of some really hard growing pains in the Lord's church, just stick around. And because we know the Lord is at work in us, and we're not as pure as we can be, we are, in fact, constantly seeking ways to be more like Jesus and to be more faithful to his calling in our lives. We aim to repent before God and seek forgiveness from anyone for sins committed against God that necessarily impact one another. And we never stop reforming, never stop envisioning a version of our local body that is still more pleasing to God. But guess what that requires? Change. Change individually and change corporately. I feel for some of you who aren't big fans of change. My wife gives me a hard time because I'll change things just for the fun of it. Like, hey, let's just move the furniture. Won't that be interesting? <laughs> She's like, no, <laughs> it won't. <laughs> but some of us wrongly think that we hate change. That's just erroneous thinking, being too comfortable with our norms. Change might be necessary because we need to repent, which obviously requires change to turn from sin back to God and to his character. I'll also mention this morning that change can be helpful and necessary simply because there's a better way to do something at a given time and place in the life of a church or community. It doesn't have to be because something is necessarily wrong. It can simply be pursuing a better way in the present life of our church or in our community. So as we look in Acts at the summary of characteristics, and you'll hear me say both activities and attitudes, at this summary of characteristics that set the first Christian church off on healthy footing, we should rightly be asking ourselves how the Lord might want to reform us, both individually and corporately. And it's right that we note the importance of the Holy Spirit in this overall context in Acts chapters 1 and 2. It's the Holy Spirit's work among them is what starts them off on healthy footing to establish the new Christian community in Christ. 
And we therefore can't ignore that it's the gift of the indwelling spirit that brings about this kind of community among the first Christians. Let's begin reading just to end with the response and what happened after Peter preached the first sermon at Pentecost at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders, or wonders and signs, were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Once more, we have to say again in our study of Acts, It's right that we should be mindful of the transitional nature of this early church. An example here is that they're still attending regular times at the temple, regular prayer times there in the temple in Jerusalem. That definitely won't be possible after AD 70. And not all of the Christian communities will be in Jerusalem. And we recognize some unique characteristics of this beginning that can't persist forever. They're meeting every single day together. Eventually, actually not too long after this, they will move that to meeting weekly on the Lord's Day, Resurrection Day, Sunday. And the unique teaching and the power of the Spirit through the apostles specifically. We therefore find ourselves again looking for underlying principles and underlying practices that we can apply to ourselves, even while knowing that What Luke writes here is more descriptive than it is prescriptive. So we're looking carefully to understand some principles and practices for ourselves. Furthermore, Luke doesn't pretend that this early church is perfect. If you only looked at these verses, you would think flawless church. You'll go to chapter 5, though, in verses 1 to 11 and discover that this generosity didn't always play out perfectly. Two people end up dead for trying to deceive not only the church, but also the Holy Spirit. And then you go to chapter 6, verse 1, and we'll see factions arising between the Hebrews, that would be the Jews, and the Hellenists, they would be the Greek-speaking Jews, and they're having arguments over distribution of help to the widows who are genuinely in need, and they want to make sure that it's fair. Not a perfect church. But the first church in Jerusalem was pursuing the right things. That's what we see here. It's at this point where we find connection with the kinds of activities and the kinds of attitudes, especially concerning relationships to one another, of this new Christian community that we should seek to emulate. So first, let's look at the healthy activities to which the new community devoted themselves. Sometimes we might be inclined to look at a verse like verse 42 of Acts chapter 2 and think that it's a description of what they did regularly together or almost like the beginnings of a liturgical sequence for a worship service. Like this is how we should do what today we call church. 
This is how we should do church. Verse 42. But a more fair view in the context, even in the verses that we're reading today, is that Luke summarizes a description of their ministry with and toward one another in a variety of ways and in a variety of situations, not just in a large gathering like our gathering today, or not only in their large gathering when the apostles are preaching in the temple and all 3,000 of them are there also supporting, other people are hearing, right? So not only in that context, but in a variety of contexts. We see they're doing these things also meeting in their homes. So it appears to be more general than simply that. But this section is a summary of the growth and the practice of the church. And the section we just read begins with a summary itself in verse 42. It's then expanded and explained with some examples following that. Luke doesn't force himself to slavishly follow that summary in verse 42 as he expands on it. But it's hard to miss that they do seem to fall under these categories, though not in perfect tidiness. So what are the four activities that Luke summarizes that the church was devoting themselves to? Let me say one more time. These early church activities could be compared to healthy church behavior, or you might even say marks of a healthy church, if... We're careful to note that Luke doesn't seem to be aiming for prescribing that specifically. He's describing more their activity and community together than he is trying to prescribe what should take place at a worship service, for example. So this will probably become more evident to us as we keep going. They were devoting themselves or persevering devotedly, first of all, to the apostles' teaching. We're now richly blessed to have the teaching of the apostles laid out for us in the New Testament scriptures by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Bible literally becomes the handbook for knowing God and relating rightly to him. The question is being answered for us and for them in the apostles' teaching, how do we know God through Jesus Christ? How do we follow Jesus? But for this fledgling church, as compared to us having the completed New Testament, they had to rely heavily on the apostles themselves, those who had been with Jesus day and night during his public ministry, and these who were chosen expressly by Jesus for this purpose. It appears that although they, the other disciples, as we said, now numbering more than 3,000 souls, participated with them by, by throwing their support behind the evangelism that's taking place in the temple day by day. But the proclamation seems to have largely been done by the apostles at this point. Furthermore, they needed instruction from these foundational leaders for understanding the place that Jesus has in the plan of God. And for comprehending how the gospel is meant then to play out in their lives in terms of their ethics and their daily practice. Questions like, what does it mean for our religion now, as Jews, now that we know that Jesus is Messiah and Lord? What does that mean for us? How do we live in light of this new calling in Jesus Christ? And I can imagine Peter saying, settle in, this is going to take a while. Just as it was for them, so it is for us. 
we also have the presence of the Holy Spirit among us, but we know that the Holy Spirit uses the scripture he has inspired, the teaching of the apostles, to ground us and nourish us so that Christ can produce fruit in us as we yield to his work. Secondly, they were devoting themselves to the fellowship. Fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, and it means sharing things in common. It means participation together, sharing in the activities of the group. And it's beyond just the association or the relationship itself. It means sharing that is played out in some way. And so you see in these verses that it's primarily showing itself in their sharing of financial resources, in the generous act of giving that some of them had to help those among them who had less. So the material support is common, or the the material support that they pool in common is part of the sense, but it's not the whole, since this fellowship clearly plays out in the broader spirit of unity as well. Hospitality in their homes, sharing meals together and praying together, praising God together. And that brings us to the the next two summary activities. They were devoting themselves to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. The breaking of bread in this context really seems to indicate a reference to the general meaning of that term rather than specifically intended as a reference to the Lord's Supper. One of the scholars that I read in preparation, his name is David Peterson, he explains, to break bread to them meant to eat together. Breaking bread just meant having a meal together. He says the adoption of this term as a title for the Lord's Supper isn't formally attested until the second century AD. So while their corporate meals might likely have included a reference to the Lord's table, I I have a hard time imagining them not doing that, having just recently received the command from Jesus, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So they may have chosen to reference that every time they met, or maybe they waited only until the Passover We don't know for sure. We do well to admit then that this doesn't appear to be the emphasis that Luke is making, specifically the Lord's Supper, but rather the sharing of meals as we see in verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple together and then B and C of verse 46, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. But you know, as I was reading this, I also thought that these meals and fellowship together would likely have been more intentional and included some teaching. This fellowship together undoubtedly included some prayer, some praise associated in their meeting, probably more than the kinds of things that we sometimes allow to pass for fellowship, fellowship. Now, along with this, I mentioned Luke tells us that they were persevering and devoting themselves to the prayers. I don't know what translation of the English text you have in front of you this morning, but it's interesting to note that 
The most literal translation is the prayers, and I'm surprised that some of our translations appear to have broken away from this. The more literal reading makes sense with the parallels because the definite article, the, is included before each of these in the list. And the fact that this noun is plural to the prayers and that there is mention in the context of attending the temple. Verse 46, as we just saw, they were attending the temple day by day. And then chapter three, look at, glance at chapter three, verse one, and see what it says, more specifically that Peter and John were going up to the temple at one of the three hours of prayer. So most likely, this is a reference to the prayers being that they continue to observe at the temple. It's also possible that they had some set prayers that they prayed together, including and similar to the fixed prayer that Jesus had taught them to pray. Surely you remember it in Luke chapter 11 or the, the parallel in Matthew chapter 6 that we maybe erroneously call the Lord's Prayer, <laughs> the model prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now it sounds familiar to you, doesn't it? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we also are forgiving those who are trespassing against us and guard us from evil. They may have prayed prayers like those together. But the emphasis here is likely the daily prayers in the temple, as we said, but that doesn't disqualify the possibility of referring also to prayers together in their homes, which we know was an important part of their community life. We already saw them practicing this among the group prior to the Spirit's coming, but we'll see it emphasized again. In chapter 4, verses 23 to 31, the group prays together for boldness after Peter and John were threatened by the Sanhedrin to stop preaching Christ, to which they respectfully declined. And at chapter 6, verse 4, we find the apostles designating deacons to help with serving the needs of the people so that they can, quote, devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, as we consider these four activities of devotion, again, couldn't we maybe call them activities of a healthy church? Yes, if we do so without getting carried away, like this is some kind of to-do list. You have to check the boxes off and forget that these represent attitudes and relationships among the first believers. And so that's where we're going to go now with the rest of our time, thinking about how the Holy Spirit is at work to set the first church on healthy footing. Let's talk about the attitudes or the, the relationships represented. They're not simply pursuing the right things, but it's how they are doing so. Here are some healthy attitudes that we see accompanying these activities. Just as the Holy Spirit was producing the miraculous transformation of individuals to respond to Christ, and the Spirit performing the mighty works done by the apostles, so too it was the work of the Spirit to give the members of the early church in Jerusalem the right spirit in all of this participation together. You'll recall Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 5, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, 
and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those sound like attitudes, postures, right? As they're learning from the apostles' teaching and the power of the Spirit, seeing the Lord adding to their number day by day those who were being saved And they're experiencing the Holy Spirit's power in many signs and wonders being done by the apostles. That's back at verse 43. What do we hear? Fear came upon every soul. This word fear in in a context like this means reverence or awe. So I'd like to call this attitude or this posture being overcome with awe at the majesty and the mighty work of God. If we're not overcome with awe and reverence when we teach about the character of God and the perfect plan of God, then one of two things must be happening. First of all, if that's going on, then our teaching is weak, man-centered, shallow, and lazy. And two, the listeners are unengaged. They're either unregenerate or immature, lazy, and distracted. Okay, so I'm stomping on your toes and mine. There's no way that an honest presentation of the magnificent God of the Bible, doing the hard work to let the text speak, to let God say what he wants to say, there's absolutely no way that we walk away with anything less than an increased awe of God. We can literally gather together around the word of God and pray that he will show us more of his face. If teaching the Bible doesn't have that impact on us, then either the teaching is lazy and misguided or the listener is lazy and misguided. Similarly, when we rightly understand the miraculous work that God is doing when he takes unregenerate souls and makes them alive to him, even miracles of healing pale by comparison. When we grasp even just the beginning of the unfathomable love and wisdom in God's perfect plan for his son to be the means to justify and restore wayward sinners, we are astounded by this miracle. No other miracle will ever compare to the self-sacrificing love of God and to the perfect plan of God to remain just and yet to be the justifier of the unrighteous. What an amazing God. And if I don't deliberately work to move on right now in our sermon, I'll just stay here and say this in other words over and over again. So just keep talking about the majesty of God and his character and his mighty works. The one source of fulfillment and joy and excitement for which we can never plumb the depths is God himself. The deeper we go, the sweeter he grows. The more that we serve him, the more grace and love he bestows. Now, there's another set of attitudes that jumps out at us in this text, and it greatly impacts our relationships. We need to admit that there is indeed radical generosity and hospitality seen here. Radical generosity and hospitality. When we read verses 44 and 45, 
What we are meant to see is radical generosity. Now, it's also true that we, we really should note that the author Luke knows the difference between people essentially just selling everything and pooling all their resources to go create an isolated commune somewhere. Luke knows the difference because there was a Jewish sect that formed the societies at Qumran. Luke would have known. So that doesn't seem to be what's taking place here. That's not what they're doing. We, we notice even as we continue to read Acts that people can still have their houses. They're meeting in each other's homes. People can still have properties. Ananias and Sapphira weren't, it wasn't, it wasn't that they couldn't have just kept their land. No, they tried to be deceitful about their, their level of generosity. But we could undoubtedly emphasize that to our detriment by neglecting to recognize the radical generosity of selling off property and goods to help support the needs of the movement and those among them with less. They're in the world, but not of it, which also means that they can enjoy some of God's provision in this world without loving and idolizing and worshiping their stuff. Similarly, they don't appear to worship their own comfort, but rather to have a sincere spirit of hospitality that brings them joy and gladness rather than it being a burden or a drudgery. You know what I'm talking about. The joy of having people in your home is also the joy of cleaning up after they go. Stuff gets broken, but there's a whole lot of the spirit of family, the Holy Spirit at work when we meet together in our homes. Hospitality is right because it springs from the very heart of God. Just follow me for a second. After all, God created this world for us to live in and to exercise dominion over. And not only this, but he is preparing a permanent dwelling to host us for all eternity. God is a God of hospitality. Going hand in hand with the spirit of sincere generosity and hospitality, they experience a deep unity of joy in God and of praise to God. Not unlike what we said about awe, the more we know about the character of God from the Apostles' teaching, and the more we experience the work of God in us and through us from obeying Christ's commands, namely the two big ones to love one another and to make disciples, when we do that, we're filled with joy, with gladness, with glad hearts of gratitude toward God and gratitude toward our fellow believers, and we overflow with praise to God. So, in Luke's summary, he includes in the same breath that they enjoyed favor with all the people. This isn't as much of an attitude, I don't think, as it is a posture that they take in their behavior that impacts their relationships toward outsiders, people who are outside this new family in Christ. So maybe we can call this having a good testimony or a good reputation. There's something about this sincerity of love and generosity, of hospitality and friendliness, of joy and praise to God that is attractive and it breeds favor or goodwill even with those who are 
as yet outside the covenant community in Christ. The sincerity of Christ's love in us by the work of the Spirit is desirable, period. They may reject the gospel with its requirement that they submit to God's authority, and they may reject the notion of there being consequences for their sin, and they may reject Christ as Lord, but they can't legitimately deny the true attractiveness of the bride of Christ. And this is not our doing. It is the mighty work of God by his grace and for his glory. This is why Peter can say in his letter, his first letter, Peter 2, 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The gospel is offensive, but we don't walk around trying to make ourselves offensive. We aim to be good citizens. We aim to be the best of citizens. And the way that we behave with one another is attractive unless they lie. The final point we will make only briefly because, honestly, in, in, the, in Acts, because it's the entire thrust of mission, we have endless opportunities to emphasize this, but the new community is clearly marked by evangelistic zeal. Daryl Bach says, in Acts, we never see a community turned so inward that taking the message to those outside and engaging with those outside is forgotten or ignored. And I would add that evangelistic zeal arises from, one, a heart for the lost, and two, a commitment to obeying the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a heart for the lost because our Savior has a heart for the lost. And we have a commitment to obeying his command because he's the Lord. What did Steve say when he shared his testimony with us? Sorry, Steve, I didn't have your permission to use your name. (laughs) I am no longer my master. Jesus is. So as we bring this to a conclusion for today, how might we summarize what we ought to walk away with? We see an example here in the fledgling church, something that is simple but profound, and it is that we must always be pursuing healthy activities and attitudes to the glory of God in the church of Jesus Christ. Let's never sit on our laurels and allow ourselves to stagnate in our pursuit of Christ. Stagnant water just sits and begins to stink. Flowing water is being purified as it presses onward. Our church must be a place where the stream of Christ's work is flowing into us and out of us by the Holy Spirit that he has given. And that may mean at times that the stream will be redirected in some way as we are pursuing greater faithfulness to Christ. Do you guys know what an oxbow lake is? Have you seen a picture of a lake from the air that tends to run beside a river and there's a lake that's shaped in some weird thing like a horseshoe or something? That's an oxbow lake because at some point the river redirected itself in an easier path and there's a lake left off to the side. We cannot fear to let God redirect us as he chooses. You don't want to be left behind in the oxbow lake insisting that this place is too comfortable for you to move. And you also don't want to be this guy 
In case you can't read that, it says church member complains. Pastor answers, that's a great idea. Want to help out and make sure that gets fixed? And the image shows the church member disappearing. Don't be that guy. Let's be people who realize that we have never received sufficient teaching from God's word. Never reach the depths of our awe and reverence for the awesome work of God. May we recognize that the frequency and fervency of our prayer reflects our dependency on God, and it impacts what God is pleased to do through us. Remember we said prayer is a secondary cause that God is pleased to use in his people. Let us be people who realize that genuine fellowship in Christ will result in an astonishing unity of joy and praise to God, but not without us increasing in radical generosity and hospitality. And may we fan into flame the zeal that Christ himself showed for coming to seek and save the lost, as he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for restoring us to yourself through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the example of what you were doing by the mighty work of your Holy Spirit in the early church. Not only the activities, but also the, the attitudes, the postures of how to relate to one another. There are a lot of things that that we can apply here, Lord, and so we pray that we will at some point sit quietly and submissively to your spirit and, and make application to how we need to think differently and, and live differently, and, and Lord, we know that even our feelings need to be informed by your word, so perhaps how we need to feel differently. Father, again, I pray this morning for those among us who are carrying heavy burdens. Grant them peace and courage as only you can do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.